0: They don't talk. Right. Hello everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome to Bruegel. Uh, We're going to get started. Maybe somebody wants to close the door just so that we can minimize the noise in the room. First, my name is Rebecca Christie. I'm a visiting fellow here. Thank you so much, all of you, for making the trek over to be here in actual person. I know we have a lot of people walking on the web, and we're very happy to have you as well. Um, But it's really great to have a room full of folks to have a great energy. So thank you very, very much for coming. We have a great panel today. I'm very excited to be talking to you all about the future of payments with these folks. We have we have Shereg Patel, who is an Executive Vice President and Global Head of Payments from Banco Saint-Cander. Then we have Etienne Gosse from the European Payments Council. We have Jörn Brube from Trustly, which is a service that I suspect many of us have used without necessarily knowing it, uh, Johannes Primera from the Belgian Fintechs Alliance, and then my colleague Nicolas Véron here from Bruegel. We're going to hear a little bit from each of our speakers just to set the scene at the beginning, and then I hope we will have a very good and free flowing QA. So, by all means, whatever is going through your mind about payments, about alternative currencies, about technology and finance, be thinking about how that ties into what you hear, and please uh, don't hesitate to speak up and ask a question. So, with that in mind, I'm going to give the floor to Shirag, and thank you so much for joining us and for catalyzing this event because it really wouldn't have happened without you, so thank you.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Hello, everyone. Um, so what, what I wanted to talk about was just to, to give you a little bit of insight into how Santander is thinking about payments and their customers and the fact that they've actually had to evolve. Um, you know, Payments is changing dramatically and I think it's speeding up with all of the, the recent announcements and the way that we traditionally think about uh, a payment as a transaction has changed. So it's no longer a swipe of a, a card or a press of a checkout button. It's it's when does the customer actually start to think about making a payment? So, you know, in an e comm environment, you know, if they're trying to buy a television, what are the financing options that are available to them? When they're at a POS terminal in, in a physical store, you know, do they, how can they check their balance to make sure they've got enough money in there? So, understanding that entire life cycle is so important. And, and what we 've understood in Santander is that payments is also a driver of loyalty, so you know you, you may take out a mortgage three or four times in your lifetime if you 're that unlucky uh, to have to go through that process. but you know payments can happen three or four times a day, so if you don 't have a good payment experience which is seamless, um, transparent, and uh, secure then you know, you're know, you not building up that re- loyalty relationship with your customers, so it's so integral to that. What we've also seen is that payments is right for disruption, because it's complex. There are so many different players, so many people in the value chain that are providing services, and it's no surprise that you've got FinTechs and startups coming in there and rethinking it. Um, one example that has really driven a lot of change internally for Santander is, is uh, international payments. You know, the easiest place to make an international payment is from your bank account. But there are such big uh, uh, um, fintechs coming out, they're like TransferWise and Revolut because they're building on the fact that the customer experience that traditional banks have delivered in this space is is frankly terrible. So they are driven to these new services because of the the lack of customer experience. So what we're trying to do at Santander is to really think first about the customer experience Um, not so much about the profitability of the account, and more about the long-term relationship that we want to nurture with a a customer, and and embrace the the tech community. Um, I want to work with startups. There's a great opportunity for us to learn from them, to to get new ideas. Um, We invest in them thoroughly, and quite frankly, even my team, I have hired a ton of people, great people from within Santander, who know how banking works, but a vast majority are coming from the fintech world, the startups, the, the big techs. Um, and that is a cultural change that we're very um, motivated to create within uh, Santander.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much for that. Etienne, where are we and where are we going?
1: Yep. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for inviting
2: me. Actually, DBC, just a few words, is actually an institution that was created by banks actually to try to foster harmonization of payments in Europe, pushed by the regulators to be, to be true. Uh, and actually, I've always thought that payments were fun, The payments are even more fun now. And why? Because actually everything is accelerating. There are new players coming, so it's not just some experts talking about payments. Now it's back to the boardroom of main institutions. It's uh, full of new players, uh, niche ones, very large ones. So, I mean, we are really, as was said, in a time of a major change, and acceleration is clear.
0: Etienne, can you also use the mic so people in the room can hear you because the, for whatever. The other, other one doesn't work? Yeah, it, this it one It may works. only be working for the mic. Should way. I rewind or? No. Um.
2: <laughs> no, you heard sufficiently what I said. And I think back to acceleration, uh, I think this is really something that uh, is a major change. So, moving from where we were to harmonize rate transfer and direct debit schemes took 12 years. Moving from, Nothing to real-time credit transfer will take five years. And I'm sure that actually making out of that something more because credit transfers, if they are real-time, actually enable much more use cases, will take even less time. And actually, the clock is ticking. If European PSPs, especially the incumbent ones, want actually to retain a role in payments, want to keep a share of the value, actually they have to act. And their strength is their weakness. It all depends on the numbers that we code, but there are 4,100 SPs, as we call them payment service providers of the traditional type that we know of. No statistics show sometimes more, but in order to do something, you have actually to bring them together, so to speak, to towards something that is common. And that takes time, which is inherently actually a weakness vis-a-vis other players that decide among themselves, that have the ecosystem around them. They actually have white pockets just on their own. So this is the challenge, but uh, we believe that actually this challenge can be met, that uh, we can actually make altogether something for Europe because at the end that's what we also ask, to make sure that Europe remains on the map of payments. And you have probably seen what the uh, Commission, what the central bank have said and also national regulators, they believe that now payments are a matter of European sovereignty. And we believe that humbly, as far as DPC is concerned, we can help that, but the clock is ticking. So we have to do a lot of work, especially this year, to enable instant, which is the real-time credit transfer, to become something with which we can do more among Europeans, for Europeans, and very much so with uh, customer needs and customer journeys in mind, which is something new. Payments in the past, we were talking about pipes, standards, uh, messages. we actually start from customer journeys, which is a revolution, because that's not the way payments were looked at, and I think that's the right way, because at the end of the day, we'll only succeed if we provide value to the customers, both the payers and the payees, so consumers, merchants, corporates, and that's what we are trying to do. Uh, And at the end, of course, the market will tell, because it's only if what we do has value and has meaning to the ultimate customers that actually this effort to try to keep the European uh, payments European will succeed and that's the challenge and that's why as I was saying we have little time, that's why we are doing a lot of things this year always with stakeholders because like war, which is too important to be left to generals, we believe that actually payments need all the stakeholders around uh, the project because at the end of the day we need everyone to buy into it support it, implement it and also contribute to make it uh, of value and actually bring to the customer the experience that he or she wants. And alone, I don't think we can do that. So that's the challenge, but we believe that uh, we'll be able to meet the challenge. But again, we also believe that the clock is ticking. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for that. And um, you know, let's, let's see if your microphone has turned up enough. I got the feeling, how are you guys in the room for sound? Are we getting feedback? Can you hear? Maybe if you guys can turn everybody up, excellent. But we'll try it with just one mic per person going forward. Okay,
3: I'll try. um, Well, I think it's loud enough, yes. Um, So uh, perhaps a couple of words on Trustly because uh, you may not yet know it. So it's a Swedish uh, company, a payments company that provides uh, online payment solutions, basically uh, account-to-account payments. So um, We have, of course, uh, we have existed for more than 10 years. So it was founded in 2008. Um, Trustly is present now in uh, 29 countries or enables payments in 29 countries in Europe. And we bought, or not we bought, but we merged actually uh, two weeks ago with a US company, Pay With My Bank. So that is then to enable also payments to go uh, across the pond between the EU and US. So, obviously, sort of our main focus uh, in terms of European legislation has been on the uh, Payment Services Directive or, or PSD2 that was sort of uh, set to uh, enable new competition. But of course, we know competition has already been there before. Um, we are one of the uh, companies that has been active before in the payment markets. And as uh, Shirat pointed out earlier, um, the payments market was, I think, right for... Uh, for disruption and ready for disruption. Um, So so we are, if you like, one of the uh, disruptors. Um, For us, of course, the main challenge at the moment is to, uh, to make it work and sort of to make the regulatory changes work. Because what we have, of course, is PSD2, on the one hand, that opens up the market, Um, But then you have also the level two, um, the regulatory technical standards, and we are currently still working towards uh, implementing those and uh, making sure that uh, the payments market that has already developed in terms of account to account payments also works in the future in this new environment where banks can uh, control a bit more uh, of of what data they would uh, provide to consumers.
4: That's it.
0: Hannes, you want to tell us what's going on in Belgium, where we've come from and where we're going?
4: Uh, I'll try to do so. Um, So um, I am CEO co-founder of of POM. Uh, POM tries to bring peace of mind and invoice payments, Uh, so actually in the space of payments. Um, I'm a member of the board of fintech Belgium since uh, that has been um, created uh, back in 2016. And with FinTech Belgium, we represent 95, at this moment, uh, FinTech uh, and broader, in the broader sense, FinTech, RegTech, and InsurTech companies in, uh, in Belgium. Um, we're a really grassroots organization, so it's, uh, it's on a voluntary basis that everybody takes part in the, in the board. And, and actually, our purpose is three things. It's one of them is, is to promote uh, our Belgian FinTechs, uh, not only in Belgium, but also internationally share our knowledge. So we, we organize a, a lot of meetups uh, in the years. We also have a big summit in, in October where we bring together all the parties, all the fintechs, but also all the surrounding uh, um, Parties, um, the stakeholders in the field, uh, and also dialogue. Um, we dialogue with uh, not only well between ourselves, of course, but also with the regulators, with the government, and also with other organisations like FableFin and the organisation of the Belgian banks uh, and Beehive, which is also representing part of the FinTechs. Um, so yeah, how do, you, how do you see it evolving? I think what we what we've seen in, in the past is that, uh, and, and I think, is, is really that yeah we were disruptors and. FinTechs were seen as, as well the enemy of the of the incumbent banks uh, in, in the beginning. Uh, enemy is maybe a big word, but anyway, I mean we were uh, disrupting. What we see more, no more and more, is that actually we we, we work together, and actually the ideas that uh, uh, FinTechs have um, uh, are being well. Uh, well, let's say they. They've been getting more and more connected towards the banks and banks are actually working more and more together with fintechs. And we see it in Belgium and we see it also internationally. I was in Madrid uh, some weeks ago uh, with uh, a colleague bank of, of you and you really see that they have this, this actual, these programs to, uh, um, uh, actually work together and also not only work, do some spokes together with, with startups, but also to uh, see how to fast integrate their services into uh, the services of the banks. So um, I think yeah, things are changing uh, quite fast and, and, and to the good, I would say, um, uh, with a lot of yeah, new ideas, with a lot of new uh, partnerships.
0: So, so we've heard a lot about customer relationships and focusing on making the experience, payment experience pleasant as opposed to strictly profitable and coming up with common standards for how that'll work. Nobody's brought up yet is with what currency we are making those payments. And Nicola, maybe you could set a little bit of a scene for us there in terms of traditional currencies and maybe some of the alternative tech-driven currencies that we are hearing about today.
5: Well, um, certainly the euro will play a role, uh, but uh, at least for the time being. Uh, beyond currencies, I will talk about policy because that's our in, in our t- title, right? Policy implications of the new developments. And obviously this is a very uh, policy-driven industry, heavily regulated and for good reason. Um, at uh, at Google, we're sticklers for due disclosure. So, let me start by saying that I'm, uh, I've been for many years a board member at the derivatives uh, trade repository arm of DTCC, which is a commercial operation. I don't think it creates any conflict with our topic, but it's still worth mentioning. I'll ask three policy questions, uh, not just on uh, currency, and I'm sure we'll talk about Libra at some point, but uh, but on the whole space of payments, and actually fintech, and, and, and the, the technology-driven developments in finance. One is the governance and uh, supervision of data. Uh, I think it is now an established fact uh, that data is a regulated space of its own, and. Uh, it does interfere a lot with the financial space because finance is all about data But because we're in Brussels and it's one of the global capitals of turf Data regulation and supervision is not the same turf as financial regulation and supervision And this is a big disruptor turf for the financial regulators and supervisors because suddenly they have new friends And this happened a few years ago in this town with competition policy uh, But uh, data uh, policy is another set of new friends and uh, on a social network or elsewhere that uh, financial regulators and supervisors have to deal with. And I think the the broad implications of that for financial services policy are just only uh, gradually starting to emerge. The second policy question or um, framing uh, remark I will make is about big tech. Because fintech is one thing, another thing is big tech. Uh, while commenting on Libra a few days ago, Mark Carney, the governor of the uh, Bank of England, said uh, the, if, if this happens, it will become instantly systemic. Remind people what Libra is. Libra is this proposed... Uh, how should I call it? It's not a currency, but it's a means of payment. Uh, so, by, uh, proposed by uh, Facebook and an association of which Facebook is a member, This book, by the way, being a member of Bruegel. Uh, And and uh, it it, it is at this point a project that isn't live, but has the potential of uh, some impact on the payments landscape. And that's the context in which Mark Carney was making this remark. Instantly systemic is something you don't hear very often. If you think of the players that are systemic in the financial space, uh, they're uh, typically players that have been around for a very long time. Uh, so, uh, so this is a challenge. Now the question for big tech seen from the point of view of financial regulators is there's a risk in letting them in too easily because they can accumulate enormous market power in terms also of access to data and uh, exploitation of um, data and that can be dangerous. But at the same time, the financial industry will uh, make surely a lot of effort to keep them at bay, to protect their incumbent protection, and we've heard already of uh, customer experiences, for example, with international payments, as uh, Chirac uh, told us, uh, that are uh, ripe for disruption. So I think policymakers generally, uh, specifically those with a responsibility for financial stability and financial customer protection and the like, have a very difficult balance to find between letting the new players, the most disruptive players, whether fintech or indeed big tech, in too much or too little. And that balance will not be easy to manage. The third and last point is about supervisory architecture. Because we're talking about supervision, uh, but we're talking about global companies, global solutions, global applications, uh, border-hopping applications. And as everybody knows, in financial regulation, as in other matters, and indeed in data regulation as well, our authorities are national. And even in the integrated European Union, for non-bank services, there is extremely little, trade repositories being a, a rare exception, that is supervised uh, at the European level, not at the national level. Uh, so is our supervisory architecture up for, fit for purpose in Europe? Uh, that's a big turf question. But also at the global level, uh, is a global supervisory architecture fit for purpose? If you think, for example, of cloud services, which are increasingly systemic in finance, uh, because it's such an increase of security, decrease in cost compared with in-house solutions, uh, this is also a matter of systemic risk. Uh, the, the issues of how to monitor this risk and supervise the players is, I think, a major challenge, not just in terms of the balance between you know, too much or too little entry from the tech space, but also in terms of uh, what kind of institutions we have to deal with it.
0: That is a great set of questions. I'm going to kick it back to our panelists. Broadly, I'd like this half of the panel to talk about licensing and competition and interaction between banking and new sectors. And I would like this half of the panel to think about fees and pass-throughs and who's going to pay for this and how that's going to work. So... With that in mind, we'll just start at the end and we'll come back down.
6: Try
2: it. Yes. Can we turn that together?
0: Technical difficulties. Thank you, everyone, for ser- being with us.
7: Does it work? No, okay. Yes. It works. It's working now.
2: <laughs> yes. I think big techs are here to stay. So I think we cannot say, well, we should ignore them, they are here to stay, they are in our pockets, Uh, they are in the minds, especially of our kids, and so they are here to stay. But I think what the role of the authorities are is to ensure that competition rules be respected, uh, that data protection rules be respected, and I think a lot could be said about the way the GDPR is actually in practice respected, I'm sure we all have experiences about that. But also, it's a question of, at the end, of industrial policy and um, level playing field. Um, PSD2 has opened payments data to other parties, fine, but where is the reciprocity? I mean, how, how can we, how can, how can the banks or the other PSPs, payment service providers, have access to data that sit in those big tech uh, databases? That's absolutely not currently on the radar screen, and uh, so that's where I think Europe uh, is uh, unfortunately mm, an expert in creating unintended consequences and uh, unilateral disarmament without thinking about it. And then when it's there, oh, oops, uh, this is what will happen. Oh, I didn't think about it, and I think there is, in that sense, in my view, a lack of uh, vision uh, very good, uh, focused intentions, or at least, uh, I mean, with a vision, but not the global vision and what will all those changes lead to. And then, when this is apparent, it's, given the time it takes to legislate or to intervene, are we not too late? And that's, I think, uh, something that is of concern is that actually, as I said, a number of big texts are definitely here to stay, or are certainly valuable, but are they not helped? Uh, not willingly, but unwillingly. And uh, are they bound to the same rules, to the same standards? Uh, uh, Are we not just a bit naive? We speak of uh, digital native, are we not digital naives? Um, That's the question I would uh, would put.
0: It's a great question, and how we handle the intentions versus the unintended consequences is a big challenge in this space. The first time I was at a banking conference and someone mentioned disruption, it was in, what I'm trying to think, but back 2008, 2009, and we were just in the middle of the start of what would be a global financial conference and you had this futurist tech guy saying we really want to disrupt the banking sector. and You had a bunch of bankers sitting there white knuckled going like we've had quite enough disruption. Thank you very much. We would like things to work. And both sides knew what they were talking about, but they weren't speaking the same language. So sherek how important is it for regulators to require that newcomers to this space have a bank partner, have somebody who's experienced to have a banking license, or should they be allowed to go around some of the old banks? I mean, this has been a question I've seen regulators hemming and hawing over for a few years now.
1: So maybe I, I think about it a little bit differently. In, and I think everybody likes to try and put all these different entities into specific buckets. I mean, we were in one of the European buildings today talking to um, some people who represent the commission. And you know, they were uh, educating me on what is a big tech and what is a fintech and what is a startup. And the fact is, it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter. What, what, what these companies are doing uh, is there may be differences on the level of investment they can make or the, the speed at which they can operate. But the simple thing is that they're building uh, products based on customer needs and trying to fill that gap. And, and everyone who's doing that should be on a level playing field. So while you can sort of say that now um, fintechs uh, have got access to uh, payment information from banks, however the, the, the fintechs or the merchants or whoever it is on the other side, they, they don't they're not providing any data sort of coming back. But that means that it's not that you only have payment data to provide payment services, you need you know, full sets of data. You need to understand exactly what somebody bought or whether they bought a bottle of champagne with their meal. You know, banks don't see that visibility into it, but then they can provide loyalty and, and services that go along with that once you get that granular level of detail. Not to mention they can have better credit scores and improve more people, approve um, more people for loans, et cetera, so I think you've got to think about those, the breaking down of those uh, traditional barriers, but then also, you know, I, I don't even like the word disruption. I think disruption uh, means something negative, but really disruption is uh, rethinking what was happening before in a better way that meets customer demands. Um, So I actually would say that we are willing to partner with fintechs, with big techs and and others in the right way to ensure that we have a level playing field. But then banks do have the experience of protecting customers, um, managing their money, Um, That is the bank's role. That's their primary role. Um, You've got big techs that come in. Their primary role may be advertising or or social or um, retail, for example. So, you know, utilize the strengths and where they are in the industry. And ultimately, the customer is going to benefit.
0: And if I can just follow up on that, where do you see the role of the bank run? When it comes, who does it come for? And who needs to be the intermediary between the customer and all of the money going in a different direction?
1: So, banks have probably a ton of customers. Uh, You know, Santander is nearly 150 million. Um, That also means that we have 150 million customers we can listen to and understand better. Startups kind of like don't have that benefit so you know, banks can help in that sort of sense. You know, do, do startups have to go and build absolutely every single feature and capability? Is it really the best use of a startup's time to go and build payment rails and connect to all the local domestic payment uh, commodities and manage those rules and regulations? Or is that really the expertise of the bank? So I think everybody has a very strong um, uh, experience and uh, a set of skills to offer. Um, but you we know, really should be working together in this, in this context rather than kind of like fighting over it. But obviously to, to work together, you've got to have a level playing field. Thanks.
0: All right, so FinTech experts. What are the costs of this? Who should be paying them? And what do you see as a thing that you can do yourself? And what do you see as a thing, I mean you, one, um, that one really needs somebody with a banking license and therefore central bank oversight?
3: Yeah, perhaps I'll um, I'll start here. I mean, perhaps sort of coming back to the point you made earlier, I mean, fully agree that, I mean, the ultimate purpose is always to build products that are used by consumers and that are better and sort of easier to use so uh, that they can, you know, use them very easily. And I think that was sometimes probably missing a bit uh, sort of in the more traditional uh, banking model. In terms of – but that also means we are, of course, uh, also willing to – to engage with banks and we work very closely with banks. I mean, we also see them as partners, uh, not only as sort of uh, competitors or, or disruptors. So I think we, we are welcoming uh, sort of banks and uh, want to reach out to them. In terms of um, data, I mean, what we like always as a concept is that you as a consumer can choose to uh, share um, your data or you allow access to your data but of course, that means those entities that are allowed to use that data should be sort of, um, should be regulated to some extent. I mean, you, you would want to make sure that if you do share your data, you know whom you're sharing it with. So I think that's a that's a legitimate uh, concept. And I mean, that also can apply, of course, to, to, to big techs. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you have a lot of data, then as a consumer, I should have the right to share that. If I want to use a certain product. I, should be able to say, okay, I want, I want to share that data with this new company or with this sort of company. Um, and, and that may also be the bank, if the bank would want to have some data from another sort of service provider. I think that in principle should be uh, feasible as well. Um, in terms of who pays for it, well, I mean, there's the sort of always the two models, I guess. I mean, the one is still you pay sort of with money and ultimately, although in our business model, it is uh, the merchant that would pay because we offer an easier solution for them. Um, But of course, you do have the other solution which is paying with your uh, data as a consumer. And again, there you need to, I think, uh, evaluate um, what is your preference. I mean, are you willing to pay for a service uh, and thus, Are you then able to control your data, or um, would you want to use the service for free but sort of uh, effectively paying with your data?
4: Yeah, I've I've followed uh, Jorn, Jakob, and and Schrak as well, saying, okay, we we go to a more open banking cooperative uh, infrastructure uh, or or, or society. And um, again, Paying, and the cost is uh, normally driven by the one who benefits from it and but the cost we see there's a pressure on the cost so the cost of transactions goes goes uh, goes down um, uh, more and more but i think there's this true benefits from um, when we look at banks uh, we, we see typically to to Philosophies there. There's like a bit, okay, we we want to remain the single use interface towards the customer, and we want to, we see this as a selection, so in terms of some of the banks, and we will put a, a lot of extra um, functionality in it, and that extra functionality can be, be delivered either by us or by others. So that's one way of looking at it. But we see an, another philosophy in, in looking at, okay, well, I don't have to be in the front, I can be in the back, but I can deliver services that are relevant to the service that I work with me. And by delivering these uh, services, being for instance infrastructure for payments, we get information back. Again, we get data back, data on which we can base ourselves, on which we can use to offer additional products. Uh, and, and I think this is uh, probably, the. I, I believe most in the second uh, thing is really banks are opening up. They will work together with... Uh, fintechs and other players in offering as an infrastructure as an infrastructure layer anyway the, 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 the possibility to do uh, uh, transaction processing but on the other hand as well to to be able to this way collect data collect far more data so they can offer far more products uh, in the financial sector which they wouldn't be able to do if they would stand uh, keep on standing on their own so uh, cooperation is the key I would say
0: Cooperation and working together, and are you gonna pay for the service or are you going to be the payment for the service? These are questions we're used to answering in other walks of life, but in our banks, it's, uh, it's a bit of a new thing. Do we have any questions in the audience? And also, I don't know, who's got our audience Q&A mic? Um, excellent, it's coming. Maria, I think you're gonna ask the first question and I'll give you my mic while the other mic comes. And
6: then, who else has questions? That's all right. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Um... Thank you to all the panelists. Very, uh, uh, I think it's a very important discussion that we have. The tech enablement of various processes, including the payments process, is of course uh, is here to stay. I mean, I agree with you that the future is tech enablement and that's it. Um, I want to follow a little bit the, the logic of Nicolas' intervention, who, who said something about policy questions. And, and on the policy questions, the deeper uh, objective there is uh, identifying risks and catering for them. Um, and I think there is, there is an element here that I, I have one that I would like to sort of throw in the conversation. And that is you, a number of you called it sort of the, the customer experience. Um, and you know, making easier payment systems for, uh, for our customers and, and, and making accessibility effectively. Um, there is a, a very interesting line of research that's coming from the US. Um, uh, there's a survey done on millennials who use uh, digital payments through the mobile phone they've identified that those who are more likely to use digital payments are also more likely to overdraw on their accounts. And that actually, if you look deeper, they are even financially illiterate. Now, financial illiteracy um, is a set of problems that uh, stay with you for the life cycle. You come in with uh, serious financial vulnerabilities if you're financially illiterate. And what's interesting about this is that there is a negative correlation. So the more you're likely to pay with digital enabled uh, methods, the more illiterate you are. Um, and now, this is not a causality, uh, but I think uh, what... And they've actually, they've done this survey a number of times because they couldn't believe the result. Well, what's interesting about that, what it's telling us, is that um, the threshold for accessibility can be a dangerous thing. If you lower the threshold of enabling people, uh, have you really thought about how you can make them financially vulnerable? Um, and that's an important thing. If you think about Libra, and I'm sure we will have questions of Libra coming here, what Libra is doing is going to make that customer experience. That's what it's going to do. Through the WhatsApp application, you're going to be able to, on a one-click, to pay. Um, and, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp has got two billion customers. You're talking about systemicness, what Mark called instant systemicness here. And customer protection becomes a huge issue. Um, so, I mean, I... I I worry about this i mean the survey that was done in the us is not done in europe but we're hoping we'll be able to do something like that just to establish whether there is a correlation of that sort and then i actually believe that making some of these things a little bit more difficult will increase the threshold if you think of bitcoin bitcoin is a very difficult thing to to, to issue right i mean if you want to buy bitcoin it's not an easy thing if you want to buy a libra it will probably be a very easy thing to do uh, it's not on yet, but, uh, but I worry about that. And so if you're making something, we're confusing, I think, digital savviness with financial savviness. And not the same thing. Uh, my eight-year-old son can easily do all the stuff on the computer, and I'm sure all kids can, and next generations will be will doing much easier. He doesn't have the financial literacy to... Sort so, of
0: Maria, that's a great question. And for those of you online, this is Maria Demerces, our deputy director who works on these issues and on financial literacy. But... Well, I shouldn't say but, and in addition to raising this question of the life cycle of the payment with Shirag brought up at the beginning, should you see your balance flash before your eyes before you even think about what you're going to pay? Or should you be able to pay seamlessly with your phone? Do you buy a Libra like you buy beer tokens at the fair? Or is Libra a payment system like Apple Pay that you have set up to enable you to use other means of exchange? These are questions that are very much up in the air right now, depending on what you use and how you're using it. Do we have any more questions from the audience? We have another mic. Okay. Um, All right, so we will start in the back and then Michalis and then Oliver and then Karsten.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Good evening, citizens. My name is Angelos Karlaftis. Uh, I agree with Maria. Can you speak
0: a little bit more into the microphone? I cannot hear you. uh,
8: I agree with Maria. There is a big concern about uh, what's going on. At the past, uh, in the ancient times, we had the currencies and way of payments for the citizens. For example, in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece, every city could have its own uh, uh, currency, which was based on a value, on a, on a specific value, which was gold. Today, we don't have this. So, what is the value of Libra? Uh, and, and this Libra uh, system, which they are going to put us in, uh, is it applied to the value of the, of the banks? No, it's not a bank. So, do we give the, the ability to a, a virtual society to control our lives on the real world? Yeah. It's going to happen if we don't stop it. The bank system is a bank system; it must be a reliable system which uh, has to fix its values because the values were lost with uh, the last changes of the 70s, 1970s. So, these values must be rebuilt because we cannot build in societies of, of credit. Depths.
0: Well, that, that's a really great question. Is where is the value and how much of it is the payment and how much of it is backed by by underlying money? Okay.
8: Um, ending about the data implications. As I'm also in the ICT, we have a lot of data implications because, for example, the Chinese they have a technology right now where you can pay by your presence, by your figure, with a, a machine uh, which identifies who is the payment guys. In Sweden, also they are experimenting with some. Uh, Chips they put on the hand so you can pay by the chip. These technologies, they, they are not so human based technologies and they, they assist the debt societies. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Michalis? Just there.
9: Hi, I'm Michalis. <clears throat> a lot of uh, Greek, Greek accents I heard, <laughs> oh, it's the third one. Um, thank you. I have two questions. Uh, based on what Nicola said, I think, what, building on Maria, is there a way to build a system like in the banking and financial world? around knowing your customer, so building on what you're saying, so knowing your customer's customer. So how easy is that to build in a new big tech, let's say, payment world? And the second question relates to bundling of services. So how different would uh, uh, would it be now with big tech to, dis- to discern the bundling of services? So how difficult would it be for me not to know or know which of the services Libras, Libra, Facebook, or whatever, and which is not. So it's, a comp- it's more of a competition issue. Are there tools there for that? Or is it more difficult in the digital world versus the current uh, traditional centralized banking world? Thank
0: you. And this is a question from DTCC, which uh, we previously have talked about through Nicolas. Then we had a question in the front row here. Two questions in the front row, and then we'll kick it back to the panel.
10: Hi. Um, with the Austrian newspaper press, thank you for this. A bit more to the point on the Libra that was raised by by you. Why on earth should we trust a company like Facebook that is not opening its hood to let regulators look inside how its miraculous algorithms actually work, whether it is actually strengthening disinformation, whether it is actually nudging us towards behavior that is very antisocial and very self-destructive. Mm-hmm. That is, was openly experimenting with, with manipulating psychologically weak persons. Uh, you know, these experiments where they, where they were testing how people reacted to certain information and whether that would take them down rather a dark road or not, you know? And so forth and so forth. A company that is actually not open, transparent, responsible at all, that only finally sort of you know, acknowledges things after they've been in the New York Times or somewhere else. Why, why on earth should we trust them with money? with, And that actually a decade after the, the big disruption you mentioned, that destroyed <laughs> lives. Um, I mean, I'm a liberal. I'm pro-free markets and so forth, but I'm shocked by this techno-boosterism around Libra's Facebook announcement now, where people say, well, this is inevitable. They're going to do it. You know, it's here. It's, you know, uh, no, I mean... At some point, we really have to ask ourselves: Is this a bank? Well, if they want to be a bank, there are rules for banks, you know. And the reason why an international transfer is very cumbersome is well, there is anti-money laundering, there is anti-terrorism financing. You have to make sure the money doesn't go anywhere. You have to make sure tax authorities can look into it, and so forth and so forth. So.
0: Yeah, and this ties very nicely into our first question about where is the store of money and who are, we, who are we relating to and where is it going? Karsten from Santander, I think, also has a question and then we will kick it back to the panel. We'll do a little run-through of the, the questions we have. Um,
11: yeah, I think what you just said from uh, Austrian Press, I mean, yeah, where are the rules? I think it's great that we bring this discussion back to the rules and the title, policy implication of new developments. I mean, we, as in Santander, we have invested in, in lots of uh, fintechs recently, but we see... The next step, the next quality, the next level is very difficult and so my question is probably also to the two representatives of fintechs here, we have the whole prudential regulatory package which again was well-intentioned after the crisis in particular but some consequences are now there where we all move on becoming a platform bank like Santander, so we cannot uh, invest in a fintech and take a control majority without having the whole prudential banking regulation being applied which means it makes it basically not a good business case anymore. And what we hear very often from you guys, please Santander, buy us, because we don't want to be bought by a US or by a Chinese company. So my question is, do you see the same kind of problems? We, we face a lot of problems when we d- sit down with fintechs and say, well, we explain them what the bank regulation means, They say, oh yeah, but then I don't get that bonus anymore. So so nobody's really attracted anymore. And I think this is another issue for, for the European uh, regulatory landscape. We want to nurture fintechs and want to be European digital natives but we throw the, the, the new startups, the great new European inventions to US and Chinese investors. And I'm just wondering what's your take, take on that one. Thank you.
0: It's a great question. So just to run through the, the questions that we had, we had the first question about, you know, where's the store of value and what is Libra? Is it a currency or is it a means of exchange and how is that working? Then we had questions about how do we build a system of knowing your customer? How does that interact with the banking authorities? Um, Why should we trust Facebook when they're not showing us their algorithms for their social data? Why on earth should we trust them with our financial data? It's an interesting question. Um, And then how does this fit with the regulatory package? And does does FinTech have to sell out to big banking at a certain point to be able to interact with the central banks and with the global financial architecture? So I think we'll just start on this end and then just work back around and um, y'all can all be thinking about your brilliant insights. Johannes. (laughs) Okay,
2: I'll go ahead.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up the question regarding the regulatory package. Um, um, I have a little bit, and, and we feel it as well of out in, in FinTech Belgium as well, that uh, uh, it is not an easy task for a FinTech to, to comply to the ever more complex regulatory package that you have to uh, follow. And second thing what we see as well is that there's a, what we see that the regulator has um, traditionally been more used to talk with large banks than to, to talk with with uh, uh, yeah, scale-ups and startups. ups um, So we try to go and, and, and what we try to do is to also to represent uh, our members and to get into an informal context as well with the regulator in order to, well, discuss this kind of problems and, and try to see how we can ease them. But you're definitely right in the point that uh, I have the feeling, and I know Belgium, but I, I heard another council as well, and I'm sure it is another council as well, is that um, at this point we need regulation, but it's too heavy uh, for fintechs and, and the kind of proportionality, um, uh, the proportionality should be taken more into account uh, in order to, for us to well, start growing. Because I, I just saw some investment figures uh, from China, from the US, uh, compared to Europe we, we're lagging behind enormously. Um, Uh, Whereas we were more more or less at even with uh, China until 2014, uh, EU compared to uh, China. Now, As of 2014, uh, China started to raise enormously in terms of investment in in start and scale-ups. The same thing happened, well, already happened, it was already happening in the U.S. And Europe is just picking up now. And I think one of the things is there as well that uh, regulation is very important, but we need to find a way how we can, uh, well... I wouldn't say make more easy, but at least uh, get into a process that we can help start, start up and scale ups uh, to, to actually comply to the regulations uh, uh, so that indeed, uh, they become an interesting uh, target for, for banks like you uh, and, and the business case is positive. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's an, a challenge, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean on the uh, regulatory framework, I mean, In the case of Trustly, I mean, we've already uh, had a license under PSD1, so as a payment institution, so I think um, that there are certain regulatory requirements and so sort of obviously now under PSD2, we now have additional licenses also as payment initiation service or account information service. So I do think um, it is, uh, since you are uh, involved in, in the payment process that involves money, I think it is fair enough That there is some regulation but of course what you wouldn't want to have is to throw at small fintechs the whole whole bunch of regulatory requirements because then of course if you want to create competition and if you want to create new players then you don't want to uh, sort of impede that from the start Um, and I think one of the reasons why probably some of the US big techs became as big as they are today is probably because they didn't have that many regulatory requirements so I think in the sense, in Europe, I think you always need to balance the two, to not um, to not uh, come in too heavily on, uh, on on regulation at the start, but of course. Um, We welcome, uh, in terms of the PSD2, we welcome the regulatory requirements there, and I think uh, it also helps us to explain uh, that to consumers and also to merchants that we are now a regulated entity. And, of course, it also helps with the interaction uh, with banks if you can sort of demonstrate that you are supervised by uh, the competent authorities.
0: Jack, you mentioned before the panel that you were at Amazon at one point, in addition to being a banking sector guy. Amazon is not part of Libra your sense just as an industry veteran on what is new about this? What is just competing with what's already out there? Where's that going?
1: So I can't really speak for Amazon anymore. <laughs> um, but I think with Libra, I think my, my impression of Libra, I mean, there's a lot to learn still. I mean, yes, they've just put out a white paper, but the devil is in the detail and how it would work. Um, and, you know, while they're sort of... Attaching it to a financial inclusion goal, if you actually decided to solve financial inclusion and perhaps even financial education in that, I would not come up with Libra. I I think there are much better ways to solve financial inclusion in the world. Whether they're ID, national IDs in India, or just general education on finances, free internet. You know, there's many, many ways that you can do this. So I think what has happened so far with Libra is that I've got a piece of technology, let me go and find a use case for it. And from an Amazon perspective, that was always be a no-no because you're being technology-led rather than customer pain point-led. And that you know, isn't the customer obsessive uh, mentality that a lot of companies now are taking on board. Um, the thing about Libra I would sort of say is a little bit more worry, well, this is what I would be thinking about, would be more the wallet. That Facebook will run, that sits on top of Libra, with 2.4 billion customers, it will be ubiquitous. That will be the wallet that you use, and there isn't a consortium of 100 members controlling that. So, how do we make sure that we have the proper rules around that wallet? Um, so, the actual rails itself. I mean, quite frankly, you know, the technology is cool, but. Does it actually provide anything incremental of what we've got today? I, I mean, if we had instant payments across Europe, and I know that's an agenda item for many people here in Brussels, that's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just putting uh, reserves of money in bank accounts and then taking them out when you need them and being able to facilitate an instant payment. So I'm just not really sure what the value proposition is. Um, and I think that will come out as the days go by. Um, I do kind of, I mean, there was a lot of questions, so I did want to kind of address.
0: These are great points, though. Thank you. Keep going. (laughs) Uh,
1: I did want to address some of the other things. So I I think, you know, Carson sort of brought up a a big pain point for us at Santander is we do want to invest in fintechs. We do want to become an open platform that provides financial services that enables other companies. But if. At the moment, it feels that you know if, if a, a tech company becomes part of Santander and provides their knowledge and their expertise, we reciprocate by more stringent rules and, and steps and elongating the time frame to market. And you know, while you may agree that that is actually very beneficial, that like security and, and uh, protection and cybersecurity and all those types of things, but in some senses, you've got to be able to take a little bit more of a risk, get the product into market, test it, learn from feedback, and then iterate quickly, you know, and that's what we've learned from the big techs and startups. You know, that's the way to build great products. It's not to just put your product out there and say that's it, I'm done, and walk off to the next uh, agenda item. Um, it's a continuous process that you have to go through. And then I, I, I am concerned about the um, investments being made by non-European entities into Euro- European countries. Um, you know, I think what we sort of learned in, in the past is that payments is a way to access customers. If they can't pay for your service, you can't um, you can't have them build a relationship with them. So, if you've got external um, entities coming in and buying up, certainly payment companies in Europe, they're literally buying up customer access. It's not about a payment rails or a business. They're buying up the ability to interact with customers and mm-hmm. blocking potentially European companies from doing that. So that competitiveness and that, again, I keep a broken record, level playing field is super important as we think about you know, having a vibrant European uh, uh, industry.
0: That's a really good point. Etienne, I'd love for your take on all these things. And also, I'd love it if you could pick up this idea of financial inclusion. And in the question of Libra, how much of, is it, how much of it is a new product for people already in the system versus a potential way to bring people outside of the traditional banking system on board?
2: Yeah. Of course, I cannot speak for Libra, and uh, as was said, uh, we're being philosophical. The devil is in the detail. I don't know what, what you meant by the devil, um, but um, I think <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I think actually financial literacy is one thing, but I think I don't agree that uh, uh, the young generation is digital um, literate. Yeah, they can use, but they don't understand what it means. So I think they need as much, or we need probably as much financial literacy than we need digital uh, literacy. I would certainly not believe that actually a company started with an F is a charity. I don't think they are doing that for the good of the people. I think they pretend to probably because given all what's happening around them, they they may have to. Even though I'm sure that some some will be used for helping the the uh, less favored uh, uh, part of the population, but I don't think that's where they're coming from. We shouldn't delude ourselves and believe that this is done for the good of of the world and for the good for the people. Um, I still believe that actually, it's still time for others to react. Uh, I don't think it's too late, but as I said several times on purpose, I think the clock is ticking, because especially, uh, I think banks are trusted, they are not loved, they are not liked, but they are trusted by you. I'm not sure they are known or trusted, uh, certainly not liked, by your children, who probably do not care, who do not understand what the bank is and know what Apple or Facebook or whatever is, that they understand and they trust because it works and it helps us do what they want. Um, So that's why I'm saying the clock is ticking. I still believe it's possible. But I think we, going back a bit to a number of things that have been said, I think we, we suffer a number of things in Europe. I don't think there is one Europe. Uh, and I don't think we react the same way across Europe. I mean, it's very interesting to see where uh, those outside of Europe new guys go, where they establish themselves. And you, th- you have to think why. And you have also to think what that gives them indirectly as potential uh, power beyond, beyond that country. I mean, I won't say, say more, but I think, I think it's not by chance. There are first level, second level reasons why they do that. Uh, because they are smart. I think the only thing we should uh, be careful is to feel they are not smart, they are very smart. Uh, they, I think they understand how, uh, how Europe works or doesn't work, which is probably what they understand better. And uh, that's why I, I think it's indeed a tragedy to see, because of competition rules or because of whatever, uh, all the jewels of Europe uh, get at the end of the day, sold um, to outside of Europe. So what 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 are we having in our DNA that doesn't work the same as it works in the US or in China? What is, what is in the European DNA that that creates that that phenomenon that we are successful and when it's successful, well, we just get out, we just get our money back, money in. And uh, so I think there are huge uh, questions, societal policy questions, and uh, Europe is maybe Europe for payments, but it's it's actually putting something that is European-harmonized but on top of something that is not harmonized at all. So it's loose comments because, I mean, the questions were very diverse, but I think there are lots of very interesting policy societal questions which I'm not sure are really addressed because they're complex. Because, unfortunately, sometimes different interests uh, do not coalesce in the same direction.
0: It's been a real theme of certainly the past five or six years, is systemic threats and systems generally overlaid atop a fragmented environment in in many different ways, regulatory, business-wise, market-wise, language-wise, jurisdiction-wise. Nicola, you brought up Mark Carney, um, which reminds us that central banks have always been the ones left holding the bag whenever the fragmenting of systems exposes a vulnerability. So as you respond to the questions we've had, I'd love it if you could tackle this idea of a central bank as a a bank, as a lender of last resort, and where they fit into this network?
5: Well, central banks do monetary policy and that uh, is transmitted through the banking system. Uh, and there is a reason why banks are regulated and supervised, because they're special. There's a reason why the public policy framework prohibits some forms of risk-taking by banks because banks are inherently risky, they're super leveraged by their very nature, It's part of the model. Uh, it's a feature, not a bug, but uh, there, there have to be some limits on the leverage, there have to be some limits on the risk-taking. Banks are different. And I think this has always to be kept in mind when we talk about competitive neutrality and level playing field, because indeed it is a feature of banking regulations that there are some activities that non-bank actors are freer to undertake than banks are. Not a bug, it's a feature. So activity regulation sounds great, but it doesn't imply that a given activity should be regulated the same way if it's done by a bank or by a non-bank, precisely because banks have this unique role of taking deposits, of uh, underpinning trust in society, trust in payments as well, and uh, lending and creating money and transmitting the monetary policy uh, of central banks. So this is not to say that the notion of activity regulation is meaningless. It's just to say that there are very justified reasons for uh, not having a level playing field, whether it's a bank taking the risk or a non-bank taking the risk. I'd like to come back uh, very briefly to what uh, Etienne said about you know, what is it in Europe that uh, implies that we don't have these big players like Chinese and US. Actually, when you look at the financial system holistically, Europe has big banks, big insurers, lots of banks, lots of insurers, very few non-banks. US has a lot of non-banks, China has a lot of non-banks, financial firms, asset managers, you know, lease service providers, uh, you name it, um, and uh, and and various. Um, various different market segments, and that, was, that, that well predates fintech. I'm not talking about fintech here, I'm talking about the structural features of the financial system. Now, that's been a long-standing choice in Europe to say, well, if something is financial and can be done by a bank, it should be regulated as if it was done by a bank. Leasing is a very good example of that. Um, it's not necessarily a policy choice that leads to an environment that is favorable to high-growth firms that don't have tangible collateral. There is a vast literature about this. This is an underpinning of the whole so-called Capital Markets Union project. If we had a financial system which is less uniquely reliant on banking intermediation, maybe we could have a more vibrant economy because there is some connection between these different themes. So this again is not to say we need to repress banking. I don't think we have to worry about that in Europe because we have uh, you know, the, 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 the most asset-heavy banking system in the world. Uh, it's just to bring a bit of a sense that these issues are related uh, in many different ways uh, and not only in terms of uh, a narrow view of competitive neutrality. In, in a way, you could remember um, the debates we were having on st- financial stability, and I think it's interesting to re- revisit those debates just before the financial crisis. I'm old enough to remember some of the financial stability conferences in, say, you know, late 2006, early 2007, Uh, Many of them, a surprising number of them, and uh, those of you who are familiar with the European Parliament environment uh, remember that we're about hedge funds and private equity. Now, one thing that the great financial crisis was not, the surprise of many, including myself, is the crisis of hedge funds and uh, private equity. They may have played a role. I'm not saying they were completely outside of the picture, but I think we rediscovered how important banks were, uh, and and specifically in Europe. So, 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 again... Uh, I think it's very difficult to keep the right balance on all these things. Very big challenge for regulators. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the diversity of perspectives uh, has to be kept in mind.
0: Thanks very much for that. It, it circles back to banks versus shadow banks, round 797. Chirag, I thought I saw a light bulb over your head when Etienne was talking about fragmentation. So maybe you want to come back to that. Oh, oh you've got a microphone, yes.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, I, I, I think it's um, sort of back to the same sort of point, really. Um, and, and I think it's really, it doesn't really matter who this entity is. It's really the speed of change that can happen. So I think what we're realizing, especially in the payments world, is things are accelerating. Things are no longer taking years to deploy. Um, and while policy and regulation still is maybe operating at a different pace than the rest of the industry, the industry is moving forward, whether you like it or not. And things are changing very fast. I mean, I was just mm-hmm. talking to Etienne before we came in here that you know, I've been in payments for like 20 years. And I've had to wait 20 years for it to become cool. And now is the time for all of this stuff to really happening. It's, it's just, you know, as I said before, you know, payments is no longer a transaction. It's a life cycle and a series of events that lead to a transaction happening. And all the different players and what their roles are and, and all this sort of stuff, I mean, that's just added complexity, which just invites disruption um, and new opportunities. So I I think we're in a great time. We still need to figure out how we operate in this new world, but uh, the industry is not waiting. Um, Everybody needs to be operating at a different cadence now.
0: One sign that payments is moving faster than most of the rest of the financial industry is that both the questions and the answers in this panel have been much more succinct and to the point than the last few banking panels I've done. So we have time for more questions. Yes, okay, we'll start right here in the back and then here and here and here. We've got four lined up, if I saw them correctly. Five, okay, who's, all right, excellent, five. Thank you.
12: Okay, uh, Gao from the Chinese Mission. I just want to echo the panelist from here who said that uh, European market, payment market, in general, is about five years behind the Chinese market. That's exactly my feeling. I was here about two, one years ago and I had a problem. In China, wherever you go, it's almost a cashless society, especially in the big cities. And then when you come back, when you, come, you know, come over here, I do have a problem. I downloaded an application, but when I go to the supermarkets, often the staff members don't know how to use it. They have to check with other colleagues. That's really a, a trouble for me. I have to carry you know, the credit card or the cash. In China, I don't carry it at all, any longer. And then, I do have this question. It's a simple one, but um, I haven't found the answer so far. Maybe it's a little bit naive. So why can't Europe have an equivalent to Facebook's labor or um, a a European champion in payment market or in payment technology? Is it lack of political will, lack of customer need, or lack of investment in technology, fintech? or it is too much regulation, you just mentioned, too much suspicion, too much hesitation, or it's just your DNA, so. Um, that's a great that's question. question. Where
0: is our FinTech Airbus? <laughs> Next question here in the, in the front.
12: Hi, I'm Brett Hecht from
2: BVA. Uh, I'd like to come back to a question Nicola raised in the beginning. Um, the question of uh, governance uh, between finance and data. We had been talking about data, et etc.
7: Um, and we had been talking about the importance of all the big techs joining this, this market, etc. And r- you
2: raised the question, but finally, uh, what would be the answer? Who should govern? Who should regulate this space between data, Uh, of transactional data we have in payments, you mentioned that too, but all this other transactional data which is happening on Facebook, on Google,
0: wherever. Excellent. Okay, back to Francesco in the back. Um,
7: My name is Francesco Guarasho Reuters. Just a... Question on Libra again. Um, uh, Libra essentially is a is a an instant payment system, uh, and uh, um, we have the embryo of it in Europe, uh, the, the tips system, as we mentioned, uh, created by the ECB. But we are very far away from setting uh, it up because uh, only a handful of banks, including actually Santander, have joined the project so far, um, uh, but very, very few of them, and uh, um, what we have now is just some national uh, schemes, which in a way answer the question of our Chinese friend, because uh, it's just because it's everything at a national level that we don't have a European champion sometimes. But my question is, do you think that TIPS is uh, 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 could be a real alternative to Libra or whatever else will come up? Because if it's not Libra, it will be something from another... Mm-hmm. Uh, big American company or Chinese, uh, I guess, uh, and uh, how long would that take uh, to have it? Right. Here at the end,
0: and then all the way at the end over here, and then we'll go back to our panelists.
13: Thanks. Good afternoon, I'm Simon Kolbok from FESIF, which is the European Federation of Financial Intermediaries. Um, just a comparison, old comparison and a question. Um, we haven't mentioned, I know it's an old story, it was PayPal, uh, which was one of the first disruptors in here. What I think was interesting in PayPal is it, it did not go and undermine the existing payment system like credit cards by charging half the price of credit cards. It actually went in and charged about five times the price of credit cards. And how did they charge five times the price of credit cards, I mean in terms of the, the back office cost? By offering a value of security to customers that was actually already included in a credit card, but no one was pushing it. So it was pure marketing worked very well. And uh, and just to, to build up on that, back to the, the point that that, um, uh, that was raised earlier, um, where where's the story? Where's the customer story in, that, in the payment? Um, how do you have to make something that's useful for customers that will be valued by them?
0: That's a great question. And we certainly have people on the panel with experience helping that um, Use case becomes something that people can do versus be intimidating by. I'm stalling for time a little while the microphone crosses the room. And then we will we will go back to the panel for answers.
14: Hello, Anselm Rodenhausen from DG Connect. Many thanks for the very interesting panel. You raised many questions that are among the hot topics that are right now discussed at DG Connect. For example, how come that the big tech players are all from the US and China? What can we do different here in Europe? Uh, another hot topic at the moment, of course, is data, data portability, access to data. You addressed uh, PSD2 correctly, saying that now that the banks have to give some data to third parties, where's uh, repro- the uh, reciprocity? And and I would like to ask you, if you not only you who, who came up with this point, but in general, what from the banking, from the finance institution perspective, how could such an access to data look like? What is the particular data that might be interesting to the industry and what are the services that might be evolved around that? You already addressed that a little bit, um, but I very much like the question from the colleague from the Austrian press who asked uh, why should we trust... um, Facebook with our finance data, but you could also turn around the question and say, why should you trust uh, big tech uh, companies? Why why should you trust the banks with some of the consumer data, given that uh, the banks, sorry to say so, were not always among the best parties to consider very complex scenarios as the 2008 crisis showed us?
0: All right. This is a a great group of questions to head into our our second round of discussion. Um, We have not quite 20 minutes left, so we have time to think about these at some length. I'm going to mix up the order of speaking just to keep people on their toes. And Jern, I would like Uh you to go first, particularly the PayPal question. That seems like something you can really speak to.
3: Um, well, again, I mean, I can't talk for, for PayPal, but I mean, indeed, I mean, they, no, they the did philosophical question. Yeah, there. I mean, they, they did good marketing. I mean, they sort of uh, did it consumer driven, so they offered it sort of an easy solution for consumers um, that uh, perhaps didn't have a credit card, and I think that was sort of very common, particularly in Europe, where uh, you have some of the bigger markets like Germany, where the card use is not yet that ubiquitous as it is in other markets or in the US. So obviously. A sort of non-cart solution was something that was really uh, that everyone was looking for. And I mean, that's also something that we are sort of providing. So I think, and that's what, what PSD2, of course, is also attempting, I believe, and instant payments in, in, in that, uh, um, if, you, if you connect it as well, is really to create an alternative rail for, for payments because, I mean, you have cart payments. But in essence, you just have sort of the card in between, but you're still moving the money, in essence, from one bank account to another bank account. So the question is only how does it arrive from point A to point B? And uh, there are a couple of rails and cards is one. And then you have sort of the um, the direct the, the credit transfer or direct debit um, as, as alternative forms. In terms of what... what what you ask, perhaps, on uh, sort of how can access to data look like? I mean, okay, PSD2 already opened up the market, in particular for uh, for payment data. What what sort of TPPs have done in the past that were already active in the market? Like TPP uh, is sorry, the third-party <laughs> providers. Sorry, I'm, I'm taking a bit jargon here. Um, so, what I meant by that is it allowed. Uh, sort of new providers to access uh, data from from banks. In essence, in the past, that happened through um, the consumer interface. So you basically were able to see what I, as a consumer, see when I log into my uh, bank interface. Um, That data was then shared with TPPs. What is happening now is, that um, banks can create a dedicated interface to sort of make sure they, they, they control to some extent what data is uh, is provided to third-party providers. But of course, um, when you offer a service, I mean, the whole point is always about offering service for consumers because you want to offer a product that the consumer really values. So there's no point of offering simply a simple transfer. I mean, what you want to provide to the to the Consumer and that is, in that case, the end user, but also uh, your consumer for for uh, a third-party provider, which, which might be the merchant, is sort of um, an easy solution. A confirmation that the payment has gone through. Um, you also want to make sure that you do, uh, um, you are able to do some fraud prevention. Um, for that, you, you need a certain amount of data. That enable you to uh, to use these and to offer these uh, these facilities. Um, you can have, and that's sort of part then of a wider future discussion: um, the, the development of open banking, whereby you you would offer, uh, you would open up other services as well to uh, to new providers. Um, that uh, would be able to to offer um, potentially better services for uh, consumers. Um, it can also be interesting for banks because you can also compete with other banks sort of in, in that space, so it is not just for third-party providers, but it is sort of for everyone really to uh, to uh, compete in, in that market for the consumer.
0: Thanks. Etienne, can you speak to Francesco's question about European alternatives and with yeah,
2: Europe? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, I will say a few things that I probably said when I started. I think. First, if it's the customer value proposition not there, whether it's tips or anything else in terms of infrastructure, it won't work. So I mean, it starts with putting in the hands of the consumer what it wants. So the customer value proposition, and that one actually, which is new, goes beyond payments. If you just offer payments, it's not enough because the the others come from outside of payments and add payments. What we have to do is actually based on what we can do, which is payment, but enabling other things than payments because that's what the customer wants and that's what the others uh, are offering. The second thing is fragmentation. I think that's part of the European DNA and uh, we just finished a a phase to try to integrate uh, the old legacy credit transfer direct debit uh, uh, schemes and the new stuff is popping up, sprouting up in a fragmented way across Europe. So that's where time comes because if we are not fast, the fragmentation will be there again for the new stuff and that's what we cannot afford because the others that we spoke about, don't come with fragmentation. They come with a global solution and a global brand offering many things that the consumer seems to to find wonderful, so we have no time. That's why I was trying to say that we are working hard and I don't share your pessimism, even though it takes time, but unfortunately, moving from batch payment systems to real-time payment systems is a huge change in terms of investment, in terms of operations. So like it or not, it takes time. It cannot be overnight, and that's of course a problem, But we managed to get the, the whole ecosystem to move. You said 51% of the, uh, of the PSPs, payment service providers, already uh, adherence to the SCT instance scheme. That's correct, but actually it's even 60% in the euro area, and the ones who tend to join are the largest ones. So, I mean, if you were to look into potential number of payment accounts or volume of transactions, it's much higher than 51%. So, I think the glass is half full and even more than half full and I'm sure that within 18 months maximum we'll get it totally full and we are now, already now, building the basis to have solutions that are pan-European by design, even though fragmentation is, is there, but enabling hopefully Touchwood to provide the toolbox with which f- those individual fragmented solutions will be able to offer pan-European in, interoperability to their customers and offering Altogether, something that works like a pan-European instant payment-based uh, solution package, because it's not going to be one thing. Um, and again, back to something that was said, PayPal, I think there are, even though it's not the only reason, uh, one reason is what you said in some set: it's the, the, the customer value proposition, the customer, the customer experience. But, and I've lived through it, uh, so I, can, I know what I'm talking about. I think there are intended consequences of regulatory decisions. Um, for good or bad reasons, but I can tell you that the landscape would be very much different now. Had some things not happened, actually, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, for good or bad reasons, I won't, do, I won't say anything, but if that had happened and that was regulatory intervention, the world of payments in e commerce would in Europe look quite different. That's history. We should not. Uh, moan and, uh, and uh, weep about it, we should act now, together, with all the stakeholders in Europe. And I think that's what actually is being recognized by a lot of partners in the ecosystem, uh, including those who were maybe seen as challengers. Uh, I think we all realize that it's only together that we can challenge uh, the ones starting with an F or an L now. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Johannes, we, we come back to you again about the non European environment and why maybe it's more startup friendly or maybe it, it, it enables more new entrants into this market. Where do you, can you build on what you said earlier after the, the latest round of discussion and questions?
4: Um, but, but actually, anything
0: else you want to say, but that was what I was interested in. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Well, actually, it's just an observation. What we see is that actually it it, it isn't... um, PSC2 is, is, I think, a a great uh, initiative. Uh, Only if you look at it, it's been there for four years. It's going to be going to go live just after four years. We look at the European landscape. So PSC2 has been put into uh, national legislation everywhere, which is different, of course, again, in every country. And so we have no harmonization at all. So we, again, have a very complex thing that has a lot of uh, potential in it, but we, due to well, regulation, we try to kill it, and legislation, and, and because, for instance, for um, uh, financial illiteracy, I mean, you could easily say, well, since we have the open standards, when you do a payment, automatically, the system will check whether you have enough open uh, available, uh, available on, on your account, and even give you a warning if you go below a certain point. I mean, this is typically something we could do with PSO2, so we think we could do great things with it, but again, it's and that's a bit of the shame. It's four years. It's going maybe going to go live in in, in in September. But the banks are already putting up all kinds of uh, hurdles in order to not to have to go in, into production at that moment. And it's, it's a pity because at the same time, the Chinese and and and, and, and the US is, is just passing over us. And the Libra, if the Libra ever comes, uh, it's it's not going to be the Belgian banks sending to them and letter, a letter saying, "Oh, well, are you complying with our legislation? If not, you have to stop in Belgium." Well, they just laugh and keep on doing. I mean, that, that's what we confronted with. So, um, I, but I, I don't know how we can change it. I mean, I'm not in legislation, but that's a bit a pity. So we cannot have a harmonised market.
0: I mean, it's what a great example of a piece of data that, on the one hand, consumers benefit from everyone knowing if they're overdrawn or not. On the other hand, that's something that people can exploit if it's not managed correctly, if people know that you're overdrawn. So uh, it, it's, it, it really encapsulates this issue really well. Uh, Nicola, I'd like to kick it back to you. And also the second half of our, our question from China, where is the European champion on this? So
5: Europe, has a lot of large successful companies Uh, actually we have more than our share on some countings of large successful companies where we're not we don't seem to be very good is high growth companies companies that make it uh, very rapidly from the proverbial garage or whatever other small space to a global leader and the financial sector is a good example of that I don't think there is any significant bank in Europe that is less than 100 years old, uh, and very often they are more than 200 years old. Uh, if you contrast this with the U.S. and China, uh, obviously you see a very different p- picture, but this is true also uh, of the, of the you know, big tech players where uh, there is a lot of technological innovation in Europe, but it tends to happen in established companies. So why is it that we have this difference? Well, I think the answer is not the same if you contrast Europe to the U.S. on the one hand and to China on the other hand. Because in China, there's this this groundswell of catch-up growth, which uh, creates a dynamic, which in a way we had in Europe during the post-war period to a more limited extent. Uh, But this is not something that is available to us at this point. So I think the comparison with the U.S. is much more apt for that matter. Uh, And... Why is it that the US has all this uh, big tech companies that Europe has no equivalent of? I think I would relate it to uh, the questions that was asked by Brit. Um, We're talking about regulated services here. Uh, We're talking about regulated markets in a lot of applications. We're talking about data services, financial services, digital services. uh, And we have very fragmented uh, enforcement frameworks. So I'm not saying regulation is the only side of it. I think there's a big role for you know, the research infrastructure, labor law, uh, product market regulation in a number of different uh, uh, segments, and the financial system itself. I alluded to this, alluding to the so-called capital markets union agenda. But my broader point here is that if we have markets that are fragmented because of different, not only differences in rules, but differences in the regulatory enforcement, which you you know, the licensing, the supervision, the authorization framework, things like that, then you're not going to grow champions because, you know, it's complicated enough to be big in Belgium, and you're not going to make it uh, big in Europe, let alone big in the world. Uh, And and I think uh, here we really have a lot of space to uh, make progress. Data... Regulation is the quintessential example of that. We've done GDPR, which is a global innovation, puts Europe on the global map. We're the pioneers. Who do we entrust it? national regulators. So the Irish National Data Authority is a reference authority for Europe. Is it really what we want to do if we want to grow champions? Probably not. Financial services is fascinating for that. I, I remember debates 10 years ago and there were two sides of the debate. There were those who were saying, well, We need European supervision uh, and those who were saying, well, you can't have that because it's utopian. Now we're in a different space. We have European supervision. We have ECB banking supervision. We have ESMA supervision of limited market segments. I mentioned trade repositories, also credit rating agencies, and a few more with upcoming legislation. We have the proof of concept. So essentially, the only excuse for keeping the regulation national is either subsidiarity, if the market is very local, and that's legitimate, or turf protection and special interest, which is less legitimate. And in many market segments, it's the latter more than the former, because precisely we're talking about market segments where there are scale effects that would justify an application of the principle of subsidiarity that identifies the European level as more apt than the local national level. So I think, in a way, um, it's a collective choice we're making through a political process, but we have to be very are excited about the nature of the choice we're making. By maintaining the fragmentation of our regulatory framework, we prevent the growth of European champions. It's either one or the other.
0: And Utopia has moved on to deposit insurance. We'll see where we go. Before I give the floor to Chirag, uh, to whom I'm extremely grateful for catalyzing this event and really getting us all together to have this discussion, I'd like to thank all of you here in the room who've made the effort to to come out and participate and take part, also all of you on the web who've been watching. This will be archived for those of you who want to come back later and see what was said. But it means a lot to us that you came and that you paid attention. And we just really thank you for for coming to Bruegel. So, Shirad, thank you for coming to Bruegel, and what do you think?
1: Um, well, I, maybe I just wanted to build on the PayPal question because I think that's a great use case that we can sort of apply to the Libra example. So PayPal, like a few of you have said, came out because there was a very specific customer need. Um, it was attached to eBay, there was a lot of sellers on there, and, and customers didn't think they were going to get their products, so this proposition came about it grew in success and then they spun it off and it's turned into literally the e-com payment method for medium and small merchants. That's the piece that's missing from me from Libra. What is the customer value proposition? Um, What are they trying to solve? I, I don't quite understand that piece. And then you also need to ask yourself, well why did they announce now? they haven't got a product, they haven't got anything. I mean, They've got 100 members who have given them 10 million and said, yeah, we're gonna work with you. So what was the, the reason why they actually came out with? My personal view would be, is to really get the reaction of the industry. To sort of see what is gonna happen if they were going to do this. So they gives them time to react. What it also does, it gives time to react for many other competitors. And don't think that Libra or Calibra is gonna be the only one. There's gonna be many options out there. But what will drive success is the customer engagement and the solving of a customer pain point. Um, And I'm not clear what that is with Libra at the moment. So there's a lot to be learned. Uh, I know there's a lot of information in the white paper, but I think there's a lot of details that have been left out, um, which I I suppose we'll learn of over the next few months. Saying that though, uh, the, the last point I wanted to make was really that we sort of talk about um, regulation and the rules as a very linear kind of concept. This, this is the regulation and everybody has to follow it. But in practical reality, um, people have to interpret those rules. and. How much risk do you want to take as an organisation against your, you know, financial fee, uh, uh, fees that get applied to you if you get it wrong, or brand damage if, uh, you know, again if you get it wrong, you, you have to figure out how much risk you're willing to take, and it's that risk that, uh, that slows you down, quite frankly, and you know, puts on, on a lot of uh, additional steps and processes and, and complexity into it. So. While we need to get the regulation right, we also need to get companies comfortable with taking a little bit more risk in there and, and allowing the regulators to say, okay, here's a little bit of leeway. You know, if you are just testing products in market, you don't perhaps need to have um, you know, all of the financial security and all those other uh, pieces in place so you can get data. Obviously, you don't want to put anyone at risk, and you don't want to uh, um, you know, misuse the trust that customers have given you, but there needs to be a little bit more leeway within which we can play, as the big techs do. They test this stuff thoroughly. They try this stuff out. They see what works, and then they iterate. And I think that's the piece that's missing from the financial services industry, certainly in
8: Europe. anyway. Thank you,
2: thank you so much. Thank you, all of you. Appreciate it.